the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to reflect on the good news of Easter. And then we're joined by Jim Dennison, president of the Dennison Forum. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Happy Monday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a Monday afternoon, the Monday after Easter. Hope that you had a wonderful Easter holiday. We're going to talk about Easter here in just a second. But did you watch the final four? Uh, Tonight is going to be the championship game between Gonzaga and Baylor. But I would say... The Baylor Houston game was was nothing to write home about, but that Gonzaga uh, UCLA game was one of the best college basketball games I have ever seen in my life, uh, and culminating in Jalen Suggs hitting that almost mid court shot to win the game. That had everything. The level of play was off the charts, uh, and then just play after play after play. UCLA more power to him wouldn't go away. Uh, that was the amazing thing. The number one team in the country undefeated Gonzaga. Uh, they played well and they just couldn't shake them, but they finally did. And now the matchup so many of us have wanted to see Gonzaga and Baylor. Really what most people have thought all year. Uh, apologies to you, Illinois fans. Most people have thought that Gonzaga and Baylor were the two best teams in the uh, college basketball, and they're going to head. Out, they're going to go at it tonight, and I can't wait to watch it. Just reminded us kind of the joy of sports. And as a good pastor, I used the game on Saturday night as an illustration on Sunday morning, uh, talking about when that shot went in and the jubil- jubilation and the celebration and just the the real ecstasy of of the players there in Gonzaga going crazy. Uh, I thought to myself, that's what Easter's supposed to be. And it was really fun to have that in mind going into Easter morning, going, hey, this is what we as Christians do on Easter morning. We celebrate. We, you know, in some ways, we 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 just holler and, and we cheer. And, and this is what Easter's all about, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. The tomb is empty. Hope and life and forgiveness, transformation, all made available, not because of what we do, but because what Jesus has done when he walked out of that grave, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And because of that, we have hope. Friends, the very foundation of our faith, this is the words of Paul, that if the resurrection is not true, then we are to be pitied. Uh, and so Easter is all about the resurrection. That's why uh Moving this to kind of some newsy stuff, when uh, Senator uh, Ralph Warnock out of Georgia, the Democratic uh, senator out of Georgia, he's a prominent Atlanta preacher before he was elected to the Senate at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached. He got in some hot water. This is a pastor. He tweeted this and then he didn't tweet a clarification. He didn't tweet uh, an apology. He just deleted the tweet. That's kind of what we do in our Twitter world. 
uh, I was shocked that this came from uh, a pastor of Baptist church. He wrote, he tweeted, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, though uh, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Friends, that is not true. The meaning of Easter is finds its complete meaning in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anytime we talk about being able to save ourselves, that is a distortion of the gospel. And so I'm glad that he deleted it, but I would love a little clarification from him as to what he's saying. We cannot lose sight of the fact that the meaning of Easter, the good news of Easter, is the resurrection. That it begins, uh, continues, and ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where our victory is found. That's where salvation is found. And from that, we go and we serve and love others with that same love and that same commitment and that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So I don't know when I saw that tweet, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Need to delete it, but you know, screenshot, save things. Uh, and so I'd love for him to speak to that. Cause again, as a Baptist minister, I, I was just shocked uh, to see those words. Well, uh, I wanted to end this segment by, uh, I spent a lot of time this weekend kind of reading uh, just articles and books and, and Christianity today ran some great stuff. And I want to read a little bit of what I read from Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an article or there was an excerpt from his book at Christian uh, running at Christianity Day. It's entitled this Tim Keller uh, hope for a better world starts with the resurrection. And I wanted to use this to kind of say, hey, yeah, don't just let the resurrection be an Easter thing, an Easter Sunday thing, but let us continue to place our hope there. That's where we have our hope. And so many people, so much of our world is looking for hope right now. Our days, our our time of pandemic and everything else, it can feel so hopeless. And I'm just going to jump to the end of Keller's writings here. He says, Uh, The New Testament uses the word hope in two ways. When it comes to hoping in human beings and ourselves, our hope is always relative and uncertain. If you lend to someone, you do so in the hope that person will pay you back. If we plow and thresh, we do so in the hope that there will be a harvest. We choose the best methods and wisest practices to secure the outcome we want. Uh, but we do not, uh, we insist to ourselves and others that we have it sorted out and under control, but we do not, we never do. This is relative. I hope so. But when the object of hope is not any human agent, but God, then hope means confidence, certainty, and full assurance. To have hope in God is not to have an uncertain, anxious wish that he will affirm your plan, but to recognize that he and he alone is trustworthy, that everything else will let you down, and that his plan is infinitely wise and good. If I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, Keller writes, that confirms that there is a God who is both good and powerful, who brings light out of darkness, who is patiently working out a plan for his glory, our good, and the good of the world. Christian hope means that I stop betting my life and happiness on human agency, and I rest in him. He concludes this way. A person who gets a diagnosis of cancer will rightly put relative hope in doctors and medical treatment, but the main source of dependence must be upon God. 
we can have certainty that his plan and his will for us is always good and perfect and that the inevitable destiny is resurrection. If cancer, if a cancer patient's main hope lies in medicine, then an unfavorable report will be devastating. But if that hope is in the Lord, it will be like a mountain that cannot be shaken. Hope in God leads to a running and not growing weary, a walking and not being faint. Jesus has secured this for us by his death and resurrection. When this assurance abides in us, our immediate fates, how the current situation turns out, can no longer trouble us. Hope comes from looking at him. That's Tim Keller, who just wrote a book called Hope in Times of Fear. I thought that was a great way to start the show as we continue to focus ourselves on the hope that the resurrection provides us uh, that we celebrate on Easter. Remember that as you look for where is my hope. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by a great friend of the show, Dr. Jim Dennison, co-founder and chief vision officer of the Denison Forum. Jim is going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon, uh, post-Easter, as we just kind of celebrate, still on that high of celebrating the risen Lord and uh, being together, hopefully, on Easter. And uh, I, I am thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by, I think we could definitely call you a friend of the show. He's a co-founder and chief vision officer of the Denison Forum. It is Dr. Jim Denison. Jim, how are you today, my friend? Brian, I am glad to be a friend of the show. Glad to be invited and delighted to be on with you again today. My friend, doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. You and I were just talking off air. It's kind of like the Easter high, but also the tiredness that in our profession we feel after Easter. I'd love to just start there. Tell us about your Easter. How was it? What did you do? Yeah, thanks so much. So there's this weekend chapel that I preach in. It's not my full-time job. It's just something I love doing, just enjoy doing. Hadn't been together in nearly a year. Wow. So it was just so cool to come out of death into life, as it were, and dark into light. And your first service back to be an Easter service. It was just awesome. It was one of my favorite Easter's I've ever been, ever had a part of. Yeah. And help our people out there. I just, I've been talking about this on the show today. So for other people to hear how would you uh how would you sum up the importance of Easter? Why is it such a big deal to to us as Christians? Yeah, thanks for asking. Paul made it really clear when he said that if Jesus be not raised from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied. That's right. So a quick story. I was in college getting ready to graduate in May. My father had died in December. This is January. I'm at a retreat, uh, uh, doing some other stuff, and the roof caved in, Brian. Wow. I mean, do I really know? Do I know this is true? Yeah. Do I really want to give the rest of my life to this? You know. So I went for this long walk, and I rehearsed all the arguments I'd been learning for the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of the day, I came back with an even more certain assurance, Jesus really did rise from the dead, which means he's God. His word is really the word of God, and his call is worth my life. I've given my life to the gospel because of Easter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful because it is. There comes that point where we all realize this is where our hope is found. <laughs> like it's not just something we talk about, and that's why it is such uh, a great uh, it was just such an amazing celebration. You did write an article recently called Was the Cross Really Necessary? What does the Bible say about Easter? I'd love for you to take a minute and focus on the cross. How did you answer that? How do you answer that question? Was the cross actually necessary? 
Yeah, thank you. It's on two levels. First of all, the cross itself. Uh, after all, Stephen was stoned to death mm-hmm. and Paul was probably beheaded. Why did Jesus have to die by crucifixion? We know that that was prophesied. It was described in Psalm 22 and other places. But God didn't have to prophesy that. The Spirit didn't have to predict that. I think Jesus died by crucifixion, the cruelest, most horrific form of death ever devised mm-hmm. to show us the depth of our depravity and the depth of God's grace. Yeah, That's how horrible our sin is, and that's how great God's grace is. Oh, that's really well put. I know that's the heaviness of of Good Friday. We had a Good Friday service yeah. and just like, oh, I don't want to talk about this mm-hmm. anymore, but it's so important. Uh, that's really good. I, I do just, one reason I love having you on is because uh, you just write about a lot of different things. Before we jump into some of the recent articles you've written, I do want you to talk about just the Denison Forum and your uh, your uh, newsletter that you send out on a regular basis to help our people understand what the Denison Forum is and how to get connected with you and your uh, newsletter. Yeah, thanks so much. My call is to help people engage biblically and redemptively with uh, current events and cultural issues. So I write an article every morning, five days a week, yeah. goes out about 5.30 central time to about 300,000 subscribers, 2.2 million in social audience based on that day's news. The one that came out today is on the Kanakuk yeah. camps and what's been in the news recently about all of that. I'm writing tomorrow unless something changes about two articles in the Los Angeles Times that were out over the weekend I wanted to respond to. Mm. So it's an article that gets tied, also recorded as a video and a podcast. And so folks can watch it, they can hear it, they can read it, they can go to the website, denisonforum.org, and find it. It's all free. All our digital content is free. They can subscribe to it or just go to the website and follow us there. And that's the basis for it all. Then there are other papers and books and articles and other content as well. I'd encourage people to get get in connected with that. Go to to Jim's website. There's so much good stuff there. As you said, uh, at the Denison Forum today, uh, you wrote about Canacuck camps. And I've never been to Canacuck, but when I was at Wheaton, I remember hearing how many kids, how many students were like, yeah, I, I served at Canacuck. I went to Canacuck. And so just a really hard story. Uh, could you maybe give people a thumbnail sketch because they may not know the story of Canacuck camps that just came out recently? And then uh, why is it important and what do we need to learn from it? Yeah, it's, it is a horrible, tragic, tragic story. And part of it we knew for years, and some has just come to light recently. So Canacook may be the largest Christian camp in the world. Mm-hmm. They claim to have served more than 450,000 campers. In the churches I've pastored, Brian, we've had a number of families that had a terrific experience. I've not been myself, yeah. but know so many people that really had a transforming experience there. Well, there was one particular camp leader that now is known to have been a serial abuser of boys, has actually mm. been in prison since 2010. And David and his wife, uh, French have recently come out with an article that's looking at this in much greater detail. David and Nancy French, I'm sorry, demonstrating that perhaps the abuse was much worse than this, and perhaps there wasn't even the response that there should have been at the time. And so it's been just a horrible story describing how the enemy could use something that God intended for good right. for such terrific and terrible evil. Yeah, and we've seen these stories. Unfortunately, one of the hard parts of doing a radio show on a daily basis, or for you writing on a regular basis, is you just see these stories all the time. And Canacuck's kind of a bigger deal. Um, but but what, Jim, this is the $64,000 question. What's the answer for churches, for uh, ministry organizations? How do we uh, get past kind of how things have been done so that these times of abuses become less likely and we protect ourselves better? What, what, what would maybe be a couple things for church leaders, for ministry leaders to really wrestle with right now? 
Yeah, I think the first has to do with the kind of accountability that we just have not been good at. Yeah. We in the evangelical world love to find people that we can emulate and venerate and lift up as examples, especially in a post-Christian, or even anti-Christian culture. And so the more successful someone becomes as a pastor, as a Christian leader, the less accountability it seems they have, the less it seems that others are willing to ask the hard questions of a Nathan to a David and mm. willing to hold them accountable to the issues. And then on the other side, those that are in Christian leadership, I think, can sometimes drink the Kool-Aid and sometimes think, I must be a person of success because these things are happening. And we're hearing stories, Brian, you know these stories of people who actually begin to justify their sin to themselves, mm -hmm. actually begin to think that this is what they're owed for the service that they're rendering and this horrible deception. So I have to be an accountability to you and you to me. If I don't have people asking me the hard questions, I need to do that today. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to the person who's like, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I can't cuck just another one. So I don't, I, I kind of want to give up on my faith because I keeps it Ravi Zacharias, right? We, we yeah. see these things. What about the person out there? Cause we talk a lot about how do we improve our institutions and organizations to kind of have the accountability and stuff. What about the person who's like, I can't handle all of this. Uh, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. How would you answer that question to someone who's kind of having a crisis of faith from these types of stories? Yeah, it's a great question. I serve as a resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White Health. It's the largest not-for-profit healthcare system in Texas. And having done that over these number of years, I will tell you that we've had experiences, as so many have, with the eventual occasional renegade doctor. The doctor who's not practicing properly, who's not working as they should, who's not doing what they should do. When we see that, we don't reject all medicine. Mm. We don't say because there's a bad doctor, I'm never going to go to a doctor. Because I had a bad outcome with this, with this medicine, I'm never going to go to medicine again. If I've met a bad lawyer, I'll therefore never consult a lawyer. When we do that, we're really turning away from the one we need the most. Yeah. It's when we're in the hard places and the discouragement that we most need to go, go to God. In other words, the harder it is to trust him, the more we need to trust him. That's a really good word. That's Dr. Jim Dennison. He's co-founder and chief vision officer of the Dennison Forum. I would really encourage you uh, to go to the Dennison Forum. Go to denisonforum.org. So much good content there. And we'd love to have Jim on just to wrestle with stories of uh, what's going on in our country, in our world, in the church. And so, Jim, thrilled to still have you with us. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago at the beginning of the NCAA basketball tournament, the championship games tonight. And at the beginning of the NCAA championship uh, tournament, uh, Oral Roberts, they, they were a 15 seed. They pulled off a huge upset and then another big upset. Uh, but obviously what always happens in our culture is with a good story comes controversy. Uh, and there was a lot of controversy, people writing that even Oral Roberts should be kicked out of the tournament because of, you know, their stances on, uh, you know, they have a very conservative stances at their university. You wrote an article called Responding to the Oral Roberts University uh, Controversy. I, I, why don't you give us just your take on that controversy and uh, and uh, what we can take from it? Absolutely. And first of all, Baylor is playing tonight. I wonder, Did I mention that? I wondered yeah. if you're a Baylor guy, actually, yeah, from where I you are. <laughs> I have a son with two degrees from Baylor. There should be a building down there named for me because of all the money <laughs> yes. I've invested at Baylor. So uh, I'm not going to be entirely objective tonight, although Gonzaga is incredible, an incredible juggernaut. But, yep. And man, that shot. Unbelievable. D yeah, incredible. Unbelievable. But, but you didn't ask me about that. So moving forward, yeah. So you've got this controversy about ORU. It's been others. There'll be others on the future. There is just this antipathy in our culture today to those that are really standing for biblical, orthodox, objective, biblical morality. 
And in this context, there was this writer at USA Today who felt like NCAA should have kicked ORU out of the tournament, should have never been allowed in the tournament, even though they were one of six Christian schools that made it to the Sweet 16. But she picked on them for some reason. She called them a tiny evangelical university, (laughs) although they are by no means tiny. It's really a large, remarkable deal. So I wanted to respond to that. Ed Stetzer had written a remarkable article in USA Today in response I wanted to highlight as well. Basically wanted to say, in days like this, we've got to be courageous. We've got to be willing to stand up for biblical truth. We've got to expect this, not back down from this. But we've also got to be compassionate. We've got to understand that people are deceived by the enemy these days. And this person that wrote this article, I'm certain, was convinced that she was speaking for equality and speaking for that which she considered to be right for culture and so forth. And so we don't want to be condemning those with whom we disagree as though they're our enemies. They may be our opponents. They're not our enemies. The enemy is Satan himself. And the job that we have here today is to be courageous and compassionate in speaking the truth in love. Yeah. And how do we do that when we feel like, Hey, this this uh, this reporter is really kind of being unfair or pushing back hard or there's any number of things where we get kind of rocks thrown at us. How do we as Christ followers, do you think, in this particular culture, uh, respond, like you said, with love and with graciousness? First thing I have to do is pray and say, Lord, I can't do this. You do it. Mm. I don't have the ability. I don't have the strength. I want to respond in the flesh, as we say. I want to fight fire with fire. I want to fight antagonism with antagonism. So I ask you to give me your heart for this person. A missionary once taught me the prayer, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. If I could see this writer as someone for whom Jesus died someone who clearly doesn't understand biblical truth and therefore needs biblical truth. If I see them the way a doctor would see a patient that's rejecting medical care, but therefore especially needs medical care, I can ask God for his heart for this person and therefore ask him second to give me his words Mm. for this person. What am I to say? How am I to respond? And when we do that, he will do that. He will give us words we didn't know to say. He'll give us a compassion we didn't know to feel. He'll use us as the body of Christ today. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I want to use that as a jumping off point about uh, a word that we've talked a lot about and and you wrote about in your book, uh, Respectfully, I Disagree, uh, this idea of civility. Um, because we don't live in a civil society right now, very divided, very angry, social media, cable news, all of this stuff. Uh, so how would you even define civility and what does it look like in our culture right now? Yeah, and it's hard to find an example, isn't it, in our culture? That's but, but again, that makes us even it gives us an even greater opportunity. The darker the room, the more powerful the light, the more obvious the light. So civility is essentially teaching other people and 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 treating other people in the same way we wish to be treated. It's back to Jesus' statement to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the idea uh, that we call the golden rule. It's extending to others the same compassion, the same understanding, the same uh, the same sense of acceptance that we wish to receive ourselves. It used to be kind of the basis for how Americans understood the way in which we're to relate to one another and about each other. And now we're at a place in a cancel culture society where it's just the opposite of that. And that's why it's such an opportunity for us to demonstrate the civility of Jesus today. Hmm. And uh, how would how do you define for people unity in the church and maybe how that's where is it that how do we find unity? Right. Jesus in John 17 preaches and prays, I should say, about the unity of his church. And the church doesn't feel very unified right now in this political culture that we live in and the pandemic and everything. So uh, when you talk to people about unity, uh, both what does it look like and how do we get the unity within the church? Yeah, because that's so critical. Jesus is still praying for that today, obviously. First of all, as you know, Brian, unity and uniformity are not the same. That's thing. right. 
We're not asking everybody to think the same way and do the same thing at all times. If you look at the disciples of Jesus, they were anything but a homogeneous church growth unit. (laughs) As you look at the disparity of them or the hands and feet and eyes and ears and all of that, unity is found in Jesus, not in us. So I can illustrate it this way. You've got 30 people in a room. So make them stand up against the walls. All right. Put a chair in the middle. The closer they get to the chair, the closer they get to each other. Mm -hmm. The closer I get to Jesus, the closer I get to you, if you're making your way toward Jesus as well. Mm -hmm. We find unity in Christ. If Jesus is my king, not just my savior, if he's my Lord, my master, if I'm submitted, surrendered, and you are as well, we'll find unity together in him. It's because we're members of the same family with the same father. And it's in that unity that we then have the opportunity to show a disparate and conflicted world the difference that Christian community can make. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And uh, this might be obvious, but what's the result, do you think, to the world when when the church isn't unified, when the church isn't civil, when it looks a lot like the culture around us? What becomes the result of the church then? Yeah, some years ago when I was really involved in uh, Baptist life and politics and all that sort of thing, the thought occurred to me one day. I was going to get my teeth cleaned. And I thought, you know, if my dentist gets involved in American Dental Association politics, that's okay with me. But if he makes me get involved in ADA politics to get my teeth cleaned, I'm probably going to find another dentist. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's the way a lot of folk are feeling in our churches. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to keep my marriage together and raise my kids. And you want me to get involved in all these fights and these uh, denominational conflicts and all this name calling and all this stuff. Really, I just opt out. Yeah. It's really what a lot of folks are saying right now, whether it's clergy abuse scandals or political conflict and all of that, all of which grieves the heart of Jesus and dilutes the witness. Take the coal out of the fire, it goes out. It's got to stay connected to the coals to stay lit. That's good. And we're going to close with this, Jim. Thanks so much for doing this. Let's, uh, uh, your hope for the church coming out of the pandemic. I know you're in Texas, we're in Illinois. Our states look very different right now in what we're doing and not doing, but we're all still coming out of this pandemic in one way or another. What's your hope for the church in the next six months, the next year, as things get back to quote unquote normal? Great question. I'm praying for the church to understand who the church truly is. Mm -hmm. We're not a building. We learned over the last year, we don't have to be a building to be a church. A church is a community. It's a community that cares for people, that loves other people, that takes initiative and opportunity to use the resources available, whether that's digital or social or whatever that is, to meet felt need, to meet spiritual need. The world is more aware of mortality than it was a year ago, more willing to admit mortality than it was. So this is an incredible open door for the church to demonstrate what it is to be a loving, unified community, meeting the needs that people feel to meet the needs that they don't know they have that are the greatest need of all, the need for a personal relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. Well, that's our friend Jim Dennison. He is the co-founder and chief vision officer of the Dennison Forum. I'd encourage you to follow uh, him on Twitter. He's a great follow. Also, DennisonForum.org, DennisonForum.org. Jim, a friend of the show. Thanks for doing this again, man. We'll have you on again soon. So glad to be with you today, Brian. God bless. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on post-Easter Monday, Monday afternoon. Hopefully you're still kind of living in the high and the euphoria of Easter Sunday celebrations, that he is risen and that we can hold on to that good news. 
I saw this video clip flying around. It has now been viewed 8.9 million times. It's like a minute long, but uh, it is of Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley was speaking on the Final Four show that he is a part of, along with Ernie Johnson, Kenny Smith, and Clark Kellogg. Uh, and if you know at all of Charles Barkley, he's a very opinionated person. Um and so I, I want you to hear this. And I wonder, this is that this has gotten a great amount of debate. Uh, and I want you to listen to this. And then we're going to talk about it. Here's Charles Barkley on the pregame show for the Final Four. Man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. I truly believe in my heart most white people and black people are awesome people, but we're so stupid following our politicians, whether they are Republicans or Democrats. And their only job is, hey, let's make these people not like each other. We don't live in their neighborhoods. we all got money. Let's make the whites and blacks not like like each other. Let's make rich people and poor people not like each other. Uh, let's let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe that in my heart. All right, really fascinating words as Charles Barkley tends to do. Uh, really fascinating words there uh, from Charles Barkley, uh, and it's the reason I say that is because of this. Uh, he he is. Here's where some people have pushed back against Charles Barkley. They've said, uh, well, there's only one party that is, you know, in their view, embraced white, white supremacy or there's a, the other side. There's only one party that's fully embracing abortion or whatever else it might be. Uh, and I understand that. But I've got to be honest with you. When I heard this from Charles Barkley, A, I think it's a gutsy stand to take. But B, I thought to myself, yeah, like, like yes, because here's really what he is asking people to do. Charles Barkley is saying, hey, what, when I watch this segment, this is coming out of another segment that they ran. But he said, uh, when, when I watch this segment, uh, he said, what it reminds me of uh, is that people are genu- generally uh, good, that, that people are generally um, kind to one another, that people generally uh, reach across the aisle. And so, uh, again, I think this is an interesting take for Barkley to make. Here's what I want to say. I want to say that I, I want to believe what he's saying, that I'm going to choose to believe what he's saying, uh, because uh, really what Charles is getting at here is that we have set up a, a media system, a political system in which it is made uh, it, it is set up for division. We've talked about this, about cable news and other things, that, that it becomes an echo chamber where it says this. So much of our politics right now has been not just to say, I disagree with you, but it has been set up to say, and you are evil. And any time that I demonize people that do not agree with me, 
Anytime that I demonize anybody who does not vote like me, and anytime I demonize by assuming that they take on all the worst attributes of people who maybe voted for President Trump or maybe voted for President Biden, and I see somebody as evil, what is it that we have been conditioned to do with evil? It's to defeat it. It's to fight against it. It is to war against it. And then I begin to see my neighbor as not as nuanced and not as having opinions and just disagreeing with me and something worth discussing, but I begin to see my neighbor as the enemy. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so I really resonate. He said, as Charles Barkley said, I fully believe him to be right, uh, that, uh, that often our politicians work to divide because it's a great way to stay in office. It's a great way to say, hey, I'm here. I'm your warrior to fight against the other side. And then we wonder, why do we have such a divided culture? Why do we have such a divided nation when our media, our social media, our broadcast media, uh, our politicians themselves are just sowing the seeds of discord that constantly bang out this this message that says, hey, the person that doesn't think like you is your enemy. And Charles Barkley here says, you know what I have found? I have found that most people uh, want to be kind to one another, that most people are kind, that most people are good people, uh, that this is common sense. And, and if you look at the Twitter uh, feedback from it, uh, I I would actually say uh, that it's interesting The the comments on his post here or not the post on his uh, comments on his interview uh, over and over again are kind of like, nope, you're wrong. Uh, Once, you know, I can't be reaching across the aisle to white supremacists or to baby killers or to this and that. And again, are there white supremacists in some party? Sure. Are there really baby, you know, people who are super pro-abortion on other sides? Yeah, sure. But that's not everybody who voted Republican. That's not everybody who voted Democrat. And here's what I think Charles Barkley is saying. Uh, that, that racially, socioeconomically, politically, that our country would be in an increasingly good spot if we learned again, or maybe for the first time, what it looks like uh, to have civility. Uh, it's interesting. That's what is Jim Dennison wrote on. Like, what does civility look like in an age where we have stark disagreements? What does it look like to be civil with each other? What does it look like uh, for me to vehemently disagree with somebody in my church and still go, but we're going to we're going to fight for unity because there's something more important that holds us together. What does it look like uh, to listen to people who may not look like me, may not vote like me, may not believe what I do, what I believe? What does it look like to be able to listen and understand and uh, and to reach out the hand of brotherhood? Like, what would it look like in our culture if we got better at this? But, man, I, I don't have great hope just reading the, uh, the feedback and the comments uh, to this tweet. But I would say, to sum it up, uh, that we have a division problem culturally in the church also, but generally culturally. And I think that gasoline is being poured on that by our cable news, by our mainstream media, uh, by radio, by uh, the internet, by social media for sure, and by politicians themselves. You do realize what keeps people in power, don't you? 
It's to stoke the the flames of fear and division and say, I'm here for you. And so I'm going to sign up for what Charles Barkley's talking about. Some of you couldn't disagree more. We want to hear from you. Go to our Facebook, Twitter or Instagram page. I at least want to believe in a country and in a world where this is possible. Uh, and I wonder if it is. Well, that's the first hour of the show. We are glad to have you joining us. Coming up as we start the second hour, we're going to talk about this, a blog post from our friend Ed Stetzer, Easter hope for a post-pandemic world. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, Easter hope for a post-pandemic world. And then we're joined for two segments by the authors of a new book called Gospel Bound, that being Sarah Zylstra and Colin Hansen. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this day after Easter. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed either online or hopefully in person being able to celebrate yesterday that Jesus is in fact Lord, that the tomb is still empty, that he is risen, and we could still have hope. We're going to talk about, again, hope here in a second. We talked about hope uh, in the resurrection from Tim Keller's writings in the first hour. Uh, but N.T. Wright wrote something at Christianity Today on Ed Stetzer's blog, uh, The Exchange, and we're going to read that here in a second. But hopefully, Easter yesterday was wonderful. It's beautiful weather here in the Chicagoland. Uh, hopefully, you got to spend it with family or friends or even by yourself, just reflecting upon the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that is that Jesus was put uh, as a dead man into a grave. And then uh, three days later, they went and checked the grave and he was no longer there and he was risen and he is risen. And with that, we can say, oh my gosh, that's where we can now have hope because now victory is ours. Death has been defeated. Uh, it, death is no longer ultimate. Sin is no longer ultimate. And then we have hope. We have hope. And that's the message of Easter. And N.T. Wright, a brilliant theologian and author. Uh, again, I like to say these about these types of people written more books than I've read in my life. Uh, N.T. Wright talks about Easter hope for a post pandemic world. And I just thought it would be helpful to read some of this. This is at Ed Stetzer's blog at Christianity Today. It says this Easter is about something that happened, launching a new world prior to any transforming effects on believers. You can't explain the rise of Christianity historically unless you say that Jesus's tomb really was empty and that his followers really did meet him alive again. The stories are uh, strange. They are not what people might have been might have made up uh, had they believed ahead of time, what they believed ahead of time. Thus, for instance, the risen Jesus, though identified by the mark of the nails and the spear, seems somehow different. He was not instantly recognized. Paul grasps the point. What has happened on Easter is the launch of new creation. Jesus's resurrection body was the first example of a new order of being, a heaven and earth reality. That's what the old prophets had promised. That's what the New Testament reaffirms. The point of new creation, after all, isn't about life after death in the normal sense. We are promised that when God creates the final new heavens and new earth, all his people will be raised from the dead to share in it. But the new creation launched at Easter was about the present, this worldly reality, was about the present, this worldly reality. He says, so here's the difference. 
if you promise the post-pandemic world a spiritual experience of Jesus here and now or a heavenly life after death, most people will shrug their shoulders, uh, N.T. Wright writes. That's not going to help rebuild the economy. It won't provide jobs for millions now out of work. It will be cold comfort to those who have lost loved ones. Uh, we would be at the same place as Martha when Jesus challenged her about the resurrection. Yes, she says, I know my brother will rise at the last day. Jesus's response is what we need to hear right now. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection isn't just a long distance, far off hope, nor is it just about going to heaven. It's a person. And it, he, has come forward from God's ultimate future to burst into the present with new life and new hope. That was and is the message the world needs. Ever since the 18th century, the Western world has done its best to squash the rumor of Jesus's resurrection. He says, and he writes, that's hardly surprising. The church, though, tragically has gone along for the ride. We decided to leave the practical work of new creation to the secular authorities, uh, but the church is supposed to be offering comfort to others, not seeking it for itself. The post-pandemic world needs the real Easter message, the message of a new creation, which began when Jesus was raised from the dead. A new heaven and earth reality energized by God's powerful new breath surging through Jesus's followers, turning them into a multicultural outward facing community determined to be the good news the world so obviously needed. Paul's great vision in Ephesians was of God summing up everything in heaven and earth in the Messiah, a reality anticipated in the coming together of Jew and Gentile into a single family. When Paul said that we were created in the Messiah for good works, he didn't mean so that we could be, behave ourselves properly, though it's implied as well. Good works in Paul's world meant people using a po making a positive difference in their wider communities. The church has no business outsourcing its heaven on earth mission of hope to secular agencies, N.T. Wright writes. We should be upstaging them. Fortunately, this is already happening all over the place. The Holy Spirit is often way ahead of the church's teaching and preaching. In my country, he writes, Christian groups have led the way in initiatives like food banks. The use of cathedrals as vaccination centers, not, of course, as an alternative to worship, but as its natural outflow, has sent a powerful signal. The church is there for the healing of the community. Again and again, the church in practice has been what Paul said it should be, people of prayer and hope at the places where the Lord is in pain. But this cheerful, outward-facing life is easily blown off course or diverted into the wrong channels. To avoid that, the real resurrection message needs to be grasped, preached, and lived. The world changed when Jesus of Nazareth came out of the tomb on Easter morning. It takes precisely the same faith to believe that truth as it takes to roll up your sleeves and go to where help is most needed, from the soup kitchen in the below-the-tracks parish all the way to the World Economic Forum. After all, the Easter stories in the Gospels do not end up with people saying, He lives within my heart. Nor do people say in those first stories, ah, that's all right, so we can go to heaven after all. They end up with people saying, Jesus is raised, therefore new creation has begun and we have a job to do. There is a straight line from heaven, from the, there is a straight line from the heaven on earth reality of Jesus's resurrection to the heaven on earth vocation of his followers. Great line. By his spirit, we can be the difference the world needs. We can make the difference 
the world needs. That is N.T. Wright, and it is so much to chew on, so much to think about right there. N.T. Wright's point is that oftentimes on Easter, but oftentimes, just generally speaking, we think of our faith as, hey, I get to go to heaven one day. It's fire insurance, uh, to put it at its most blunt. That hey, one of these days, I will get to, uh, when I die, all my problems are going to go away, and I'm going to get to be with Jesus. And that's good. That's not incorrect. We can celebrate that. But N.T. Wright says that's not all. We also need to talk about that because of the resurrection, this this kingdom has been initiated and we need to live this out now in our day to day lives. That it is the church that needs to be feeding the hungry. It is the church that needs to be standing up for the marginalized. It is the Christ follower who needs to be in the margins, helping people and being the hands and feet of Jesus. And to put a bow on it, how much, how greatly important is that now in a hopefully post-pandemic world where we start to come out of this pandemic, but where people are hurting, looking for help, we can't fall into the trap of going, ah, it's the government's job. It's not the government's job. It's the church's job. And the church could just blow the government out of the water the way it's been doing since the first century, caring for the sick, uh, being there for the leper, uh, being there for the poor putting others in front of themselves. That's the opportunity we have. That's the Easter hope in a post-pandemic world. That's such good news, friends. And may we take that upon ourselves as we hopefully move into a day and age here where the pandemic is no longer defining, but instead we have to be there to help pick up the pieces. Great word there from NT Writing Christianity Today. You can find it uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next for two segments, Sarah Zylstra and Colin Hansen. They're going to come on to talk about their new book that just released called Gospel Bound. Excited to talk to Sarah and Colin next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, really glad to have you with us today. Uh, Hope that you're having a great day, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, for the next two segments by the authors of a book that is just coming out this week. It is called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Those authors are Colin Hansen and Sarah Zylstra. Colin and Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Absolutely. Sarah, why don't we start with you and then Colin, why don't you guys introduce yourself so our our audience can get to know you a little bit beyond the book? Yeah, my name is Sarah Zylstra, as you said. Um, I write stories of where God is at work in the world. That's my primary responsibility. So almost think of it as like being a journalist following around the Holy Spirit. Um, Mm -hmm. So of course, on the one hand, the Spirit is always active all the time in all things. Um, but there are also places where we can see that God is doing something that's really amazing um, and really encouraging. And so mm-hmm. my job is to find those stories and write those down for the edification of our readers. So it is my favorite job in the world. That's awesome. That's great. That, uh, we've done many of your stories on this show, so we oh. can tell our readers out there it is a a good thing to go check out. Colin, how about you? Introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, so Sarah does that with me through the Gospel Coalition, and I serve as the Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief of the Gospel Coalition. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Sarah and I got to know each other while we were both in Chicago at Mm. the time. So both of us went to Northwestern. 
Um, and then I also did my grad school there in, in Chicago at Trinity, uh, Evangelical Divinity School. And Sarah and I worked together for years at Christianity Today magazine on news before we started doing what Sarah just described right there together at the Gospel Coalition, which I love the way she puts that. That's been we don't see that very commonly in journalism. And so we want to bring that light of the gospel to to the Internet for people to be encouraged and challenged and come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we always point people to the Gospel Coalition website. So much good stuff there. And as we said, your book that is just coming out is called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. And Sarah, let me start with you. Uh, before talking about the good news, let's talk about the bad news. Uh, why do we, why would you say that our culture right now, COVID, all this sort of stuff, would you say that there's just this rising anxiety right now? And what, what would you pin that on? Definitely. I think, um, and it's just not, you know, maybe you see it in your friends or in your own mental health, but also the numbers bear that out. There has Mm -hmm. been a tremendous spike in calls to mental health hotlines, um, reports of depression, lots of reports, reports of anxiety. We think that stems from a couple of different things. One certainly is our culture is drifting away from God. Um, that cultural Christianity and that cultural storyline we used to all live in together, that there was a good God, that he loved us, that there was a purpose for things. Um, that's no longer like a commonly accepted storyline. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. sort of those, those you know, bedrock foundations that would maybe get a culture through some difficult circumstances, wars, depressions, um, wasn't there, isn't there anymore, or is is leaving us. And so I think that's where we see a lot of the anxiety rising up. Also, of course, in um, the media, Mm -hmm. as we Mm -hmm. report more and more often, we are consuming more news now than we ever have before, just because it's so ubiquitous. It's on your phone all the time. Well, of course, the stories that we click on with our human nature are the bad news stories. Those are the ones that in, that um, instigate our fight or flight instinct. Yeah. Those are the ones that get our heart racing. That's the story you're going to click on to see what's going on. And then news, which is a business, offers you more of those stories until it can just feel like you are standing under a waterfall of bad news all the time. Yeah, it's so true. And Colin, kind of playing off of that, uh, what role do you think uh, our uh, social media plays with our anxiety? It's kind of like a necessary evil these days to be on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But uh, how would you tie those two together, the anxiety of our culture and the rise of social media? I remember, Brian, last year, my wife grabbed me and she said, you've got to watch this documentary on Netflix called <laughs> The Social Dilemma. And she, And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll add it to the queue. And she said, no, literally tonight, here's the iPad. You are going to watch this right now. And she, this is not something that's common <laughs> for her to say. And I just responded and I said, I live the social dilemma every <laughs> single day through the Gospel Coalition. I think, Brian, a lot of people don't realize what's actually happening. That's right. Um, they don't realize that w- what Sarah just talked about. The way to attention is currency. Attention is money. Attention is how you sell advertising. So it's how these different social media giants became giants. It's through that attention. YouTube is going to serve up that next video that gets you riled up. That I mean, if they find one video that you watch through, they they continue to serve you that same thing over and over and over again. And this is a fundamental shift in how we consume and how we engage with media. It's not the same as radio. It's not the same as television. It's certainly not the same way, same as books. 
And I just am not sure how many people understand that there are people who are smarter, unfortunately, than, than us on this, on this <laughs> interview and get paid a way more money with very fancy psychology degrees whose job is to make you feel anxious and afraid because mm-hmm. that gets your attention and that gets your money. I don't know yeah. if a lot of people realize that, but that's what Sarah and I are trying to help people to understand. If as a Christian you're feeling discouraged, it might be. We think it probably is because people want you to feel that way. Yeah, yeah. That uh, documentary, The Social Dilemma, uh, was so good and so terrifying <laughs> when Absolutely. I watched it. It was uh, a little bit of both. So, Sarah, let's turn to the good news then. And thankfully, you guys are staying for a second segment where we can really unpack the good news. Uh, but what is the good news that the uh, very specifically that the church has speaking to an age that is just ripe with anxiety right now? Well, I think it helps to understand what's going on. And I don't think you can really understand what's happening or make sense of the world unless you believe in God and you know that he created the world and that um, our sin broke it um, until you understand that Jesus came and died for us until you understand that um, he is redeeming all things. Mm -hmm. If you have that worldview, things make a lot more sense and they feel a lot more stable um, if you know there's a God who loves you, who will, you know, someday come for you um, and you'll be able to live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That's encouraging. That's hopeful. That gives you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. It gives you a reason to help your neighbor. Um, it gives you a reason to invite someone to church. It gives you a reason to smile at somebody in the grocery store mm-hmm. instead of, you know, glaring at them and running away because you're afraid of their germs. There's just, you know, it changes everything. Um, the gospel changes everything. And that is, of course, the fundamental good news. Yeah. And then the secondary good news that we're sharing is um, those stories, like those ways that Christians who believe that are caring for the sick and and um, loving their enemies and extending hospitality. Yeah, yeah. And, and Colin, before we jump to the next segment, uh, it seems like if what you guys are saying is true, and I totally agree with what you guys are saying, that uh, we like to say that people aren't open to the gospel in our culture anymore. They're kind of pushing against it. But really, if this is what's going on out there, it seems like it's a ripe time for people to hear the gospel because people are searching for hope right now. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I think we can help people to understand that people want you to be discouraged. They can understand Then I can have a choice here, Brian. Mm-hmm. I can do something different. I can, I can, there's something, something can change in my life. And Sarah did a great job of understanding what can fundamentally change in your relationship with Christ. But what can also change is your perspective on the world. We think the key is instead of thinking so big, is thinking small, thinking mm-hmm. about your neighborhood, thinking about your family, thinking about your church, about your school, what you can do to invest in those places. We think that's a key for people to be able to live with greater health in the in the day after day. Absolutely. So we're thrilled to be joined by Colin Hansen and Sarah Zylstra, the authors of a new book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Let me encourage you to go to 1160hope.com. Use the keyword gospel. That's 1160hope.com, keyword gospel. Uh, and there, uh, they're giving away free books. So you, if you want a chance to win a copy of Gospel Bound, go do that at 1160hope.com. Well, Colin and Sarah, we're thrilled that you're uh, joining us again. And part of your book is 
uh, just looking at, at stories of Christians who are kind of quietly changing the world in the name of Jesus. Just some real great examples of what you're talking about. And Sarah, we'll start with you. Uh, without giving away too much of the book, is there a story that kind of stands out for you that, uh, that you really love with, uh, in this book? Yeah, I love all the stories in this book. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I'll tell you one I really love. Um, there is a, a movement, I'm not sure if you guys have covered this before, that's called classical education. And it's a throwback to, um, gosh, the way people were educated for years and years and years before the progressive educational system, um, and which was introduced primarily by John Dewey in the 1920s. Um, so the educational system we have now is quite child-centric and child-led. And this older system is, um, oh, well, at least the Christian version of it is very <laughs> Christ-centered. That's right. And so the whole curriculum um, is super robust, super strong. Um, I drive my kids to a school in Naperville called Covenant Classical School. Sure. And it takes me an hour to get there every day, but it's so worth it for the beauty of the education. Well, the reputation of this education can be off-putting because um, it's it's a private school, so these schools are generally more expensive. You have mm -hmm. to pay tuition. Um, it can seem like only smart kids can go there because it sounds fancy and they learn Latin. Um, <laughs> and it can just feel like, gosh, that's a lot of effort to put into a school. Um, but there is once upon a time, there was a man in Minneapolis who lived in an under-resourced neighborhood and he mm. heard a message from his pastor, who is John Piper, that said, mm -hmm. risk something for the Lord. And as he would drive to school every day, he worked at a um, private Christian school in the suburbs. He would see his neighborhood, the kids in his own neighborhood, standing around waiting to get on the bus. And he was just wishing that he could provide them an excellent, robust, God-centered education. Mm. And so he quit his job at his affluent um, private school in the suburbs, and he started a school that's called Hope Academy right in the middle of Minneapolis in a terrible neighborhood where they now serve six or 700 kids. They've just started graduating their first classes that wow. they've brought all the way from kindergarten up until high school. Um, their kids are reading, they're, they're on grade level, they've got buy-in from the parents, um, they're seeing fruit in their lives spiritually. They're sending them to college. Um, the beauty of a, of a solid education that points a child that shapes to God and that shapes their heart to love the Lord is the most amazing thing. Yeah. And that that could be done um, in a place where you don't have the resources that other places have makes me, I'm just amazed. It's such an extension of God's grace and generosity. Well, that's a great story. I actually think I have an old college friend who used to work at Hope Academy. So that's a that's a Dan, really wonderful could be Dan story. Olson. Dan Olson's still there. He was at Wheaton with probably same okay. time as you. Yeah, okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds like an awesome story. And so, Colin, quick question uh, in the title. I love that word resolute hope. It's not just living with hope, but living with resolute hope. Can you speak to uh, what that word means, kind of resolute and also why you guys chose to put that word uh, with hope in your title? A very perceptive, Brian. We spent a lot of time on that specific word. <laughs> you know, at one point it started out as sober hope, and we just thought people might uh, might get confused about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What we love about the resolute hope uh, phrase there is it is it helps to explain what we mean by gospel bound. Gospel bound, like bound, being bound to the gospel means that as this culture, the winds are blowing, change is coming. You're so confused. You're so discouraged by what you're seeing. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ keeps you tethered. It keeps you tied down. Mm -hmm. The hurricane may be blowing, but you're not going anywhere. You're resolute. You're, You're bound to the gospel. But then there's a sense in which this resoluteness actually helps to prepare you for the future. And you're propelled forward. You're you bound forward in hope because you know what's coming. You know how the story ends. You know that that hurricane mm-hmm. is going to die down and it's going to be peaceful and beautiful and the birds will return and and, and all that will happen. And, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth as we understand eschatologically with Christ's return. So that's how we see that work. And the people that we've described, we call them gospel-bound Christians throughout this book, people like uh, Sarah was just discussing there the people we had the privilege to get to know and be able to write about, because that's what we see in them, this resolute hope that no matter what comes, they're going to be able to stand strong in the confidence of Christ, and they're able to 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 make a difference in their world, and they're able to you know to, to live out that hope in tangible, practical ways that the rest of us can be inspired by and even follow. So that's what we were thinking about Resolute, and we, we hope that communicates to people. It absolutely does. And uh, Colin, let me quickly ask you, and then Sarah, we'll, we'll have you close out this interview. Colin, uh, you're also the host of the Gospel Bound podcast. So I want to make sure people have a chance to hear about that. If they uh, subscribe to the Gospel Bound podcast, what are the types of things they're going to hear? Well, you get to hear from a lot of people who are doing this kind of stuff and you know around the world, they're living out this. But I think one of the most Things I like the most, Brian, about that mm-hmm. podcast is I get to talk to people who are not Christians. Uh, for example, I'm going to be speaking with the uh, the president of Northwestern University wow. um, there in Chicago. I'm going to be I'm speaking with the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. What I do is I I just try to be able to show that in the confidence we have in the gospel. We're able to to talk with anybody about Jesus. We're able mm-hmm. to have meaningful conversations that don't just devolve into finger pointing and anger That's and right. acrimony and all that kind of stuff that seems to work so well in terms of uh, in terms of media. I mean, sometimes Brian, when I go on media, when I'm when I'm on PBS or something like that, they set me up for a fight. Mm. You know, the, the whole thing is designed kind of like reality TV for That's there to right. be conflict, you know, hair pulling and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. With the Gospel Bound podcast, I want to show that there's a better way that our faith instills us with a confidence to be able to engage the world in positive ways, even to learn from people who are unlike us and to be able to share with them the hope of Christ. That's what we do with the podcast. And we also think that this is what the Gospel Bound Christians in our book do in their everyday yeah. lives. So that's how those two things fit together. That's great. It's called the Gospel Bound Podcast. Also, we're talking about their book, Gospel Bound. And Sarah, with like the minute and a half we have left or so, I do just want to give you a chance to uh, speak to, you know, someone's in their car right now, someone's listening at home, and they're they're just anxious, they're fearful, they're just weighed down by life right now. Could you speak a word of hope to that very specific person who's struggling at this moment? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Lord tells us over and over again to trust Him. And I think the best way, you know, that's hard to do, just, you know, it's easier said than done for sure. Um, One of the ways that I have been able, my faith has grown tremendously is to go small, like Colin was saying. If I can look over, if I can notice where God is at work and providing for me, even throughout a day, oh, I needed time to work and I got a pocket of time to work or, Mm -hmm. oh, 
you know, something that we needed, or I can see him provide for a friend, um, that reinforces in me that he is there and caring for us. And then if I can see him do it again and again and again and again, that's just like we're Pavlovian, right? Like it's just like, (laughs) then there's the next thing that reinforces that. Um, I think you just have to see that. I think you have to build that muscle. I don't think, you know, you can just say it and it will automatically happen. I think there's still the anxiety in your heart. I think if you experience it and you pay, you can pay attention, then you can see it happening. Um, I think one of Satan's best ways, um, is to just best ways to distract us, um, Mm -hmm. throwing all kinds of stuff at us, certainly our phone. But I think if you look around, um, your faith will be built up just by the everyday ways that God cares for you. He is with you in every minute, caring for you and holding you together. Oh, that's a good word. Again, Colin Hansen and Sarah Zylstra are the authors of a new book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. And again, uh, for your chance to win a free copy of Gospel Bound, go to 1160hope.com, uh, search keyword gospel. That's 1160hope.com keyword gospel. Colin and Sarah, congrats on the book. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was fun to be here. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have had you with us on this Monday afternoon. Uh, Something we've been trying to do uh, ever since the beginning of the pandemic is try to end uh, with just stuff to make you think some good news, some uh, some things to kind of stretch you, challenge you. Uh, and that's what this one's going to be a little bit. I'm reading this from the New York Post. I'm a big baseball fan, as you know, a, a New York Mets fan. But this is about uh, Anaheim Angels pitcher Ty Buttry. Uh, Ty Buttry uh, is in the bullpen or was in the bullpen. Uh, of the uh, Anaheim Angels. He appeared in 115 innings over the last three seasons. It became, it says here, one of the most dependable options in the LA Angels bullpen. Uh, he has a salary of $600,500 uh, after having salaries of at least $545,000 in the previous three years. On top of that, a $1.3 million signing bonus from when he came out of the draft. So why are we talking about a middle reliever for the Anaheim Angels? Well, the reason we're doing that is because he is no longer uh, a middle reliever for the Anaheim Angels. In fact, he just surprisingly stepped away. We read this. Angels pitcher Ty Buttry says he abruptly quit baseball in the middle of a promising career because he was playing for the wrong reasons, money, and to prove others wrong. Here's what he wrote on social media. Uh, He's 28 years old. He said, I'm tired of pretending and lying to the best fan base in the world. Life is super simple. Find your true passion, find people you love, and don't care about what any person outside of those lines thinks. People love to have control over others. He continued to say, my whole life, I've played the game for everyone else. I just wanted to prove everyone wrong. When I wouldn't make a team, I worked 10 times harder to avoid being perceived as a failure. As time went on, baseball became more of a business and less of a game, and I couldn't help but notice my love and passion for this game started to diminish. Uh, Buttry singled out an unidentified teacher in his life who told him his chances of reaching the major leagues were slim and that he should lower his expectations. He thought, I always thought baseball was a cool job. 
I also knew that same job paid extremely well. What young kid doesn't want a cool job that pays well? I hyper-focused on every aspect of this game. I increased my level of commitment to make a lot of money and say I have a cool job and to prove everybody uh, who didn't believe in me and doubted my ability to become an MLB player that I could do it. He continued, I made the decision to leave baseball. I contacted the Angels and they asked me to give it some time and think about it. Part of the process was to be optioned to the minors, which I accepted. I took the additional time to make sure my thoughts were clear. I recontacted the Angels and told them I was leaving the game for my own personal reasons. He did not specify the next step of his life for him and his wife, but he said that they are going to, quote, start living the life we really want as a normal, hardworking dude that loves his family and friends. So that's this interesting story that came out this week of former Angels reliever Ty Buttry, only age of 28, saying, I'm tired of pretending. And why did I want to end the show with this story? Well, a couple different reasons. The first is uh, I do appreciate uh, what he said uh, about finding your true passion, finding the people you love and not allowing other people to kind of craft that for you. Because I think a lot of times we do this. I've shared on this show before that I can struggle with the um, with people pleasing. I can struggle with that as kind of a uh, a fallback for me. And sometimes you can lose sight of am I doing what I'm you know, whether it be a career or whether it be a decision I've made, am I doing this to prove uh, that I'm worthy? Am I doing this to please enter name, right? My parents or uh, the boss or these group of people who have these expectations of me or uh, my sibling or whatever else it might be. Uh, am I trying to prove myself as worthy? He said that when he would fail, he just wanted to prove people wrong, which is an okay motivator. Uh, but he said money and the ability, the desire to prove people wrong no longer kind of held it for him. And I find that to be really fascinating. What a gutsy move then to say, so I'm going to get out. Because there are millions upon millions of people out there who would say, I wish I could play Major League Baseball. For the money, for the fame, for the game, for the fun, for whatever else it would be. And he just kind of came to the point where he said, that's not for me. And so my point here, as we have a couple more minutes left with each other, is uh, where, when you look in the mirror, where do you get your value? When you look in the mirror and you just, it's just you and your thoughts, uh, where uh, did you get your, where, do, I guess that's the great best way to put it. Where do you get your value? Uh, what causes you to look in the mirror and say, I'm valuable? Because as Christ followers, here's what we know. Our value is not found in what I can do, whether it be a major league baseball pitcher, whether it be a businessman, whether it be a parent, whatever else it might be. My value is not found in what I do. My value is found not only in who I am, but who created me. We read in scripture that uh, as Christ followers, uh, that we have been created in the very image of God, that he knit us together in our mother's womb. And then we are also told that in Christ, we are God's children, that we've been adopted into his family. What an unbelievable statement that is, that that is the place we find our value. That is the place that we find our meaning. Not in how much money we can make or what title we have, what school we can get into, where our diplomas from, whatever else it might be. That ultimately our value, whether rich or poor, 
uh, really successful, out of work, whatever else it might be, uh, A student, C student, whatever else, our value is found in the fact uh, that I've been created by Almighty God, that he knows me more deeply than I even know myself, and that in Christ I am his child, that he loves me so much that he sent Jesus uh, to pay the penalty for my sins so that I may have life and forgiveness. Like that's where our value comes. And so I read these stories about, or this story about this picture uh, going, hey, this wasn't it for me. I was doing this for all the wrong reasons. And it makes me think, do uh, do some of us run into that problem as well? Do do we also search out our va- our validation, our value in other people and other people's opinions and what they think of us by getting like the hey, great job, you're really good at that, or is it enough for me that I've been created by the God of the universe who loves me so much that He says in Christ you are my child, friends? That's value that cannot be surpassed, cannot be lost, and nothing in this world can ever compare. I want to leave us with that encouragement and also that challenge to think about, where do I find my value? Well, we're glad that you joined us. We'd love to have you join us tomorrow from four until six. My name is Brian Fromm, and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.